I deleted one slide. I thought last week we'd get through more than one. Didn't do it. So we just bumped it to the next one. Now what we're hoping to do, I reread this yesterday, is to get, if not this time, the next time I teach, to this article, CIC issue 113, Providence and Promise. Because this doctrine of providence must be understood in order to understand what's going to be happening and is happening in Acts. If we don't have a robust doctrine of providence, we will not understand the Bible. And we won't understand how God works. And we won't have the kind of categories we need to make decisions as Christians without fear or recrimination. And I've seen some CIC readers tell me that their lives have been transformed by understanding this doctrine. Because otherwise they're always under fear. Well, if I make the wrong decision, then some horrible thing's going to happen. And I don't know what God told me to do, so I don't know what decision to make. It turns people into mystics. Now, uh, let's start with a prayer and go to verse 24, Acts 11. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that we can see your providence in action to fulfill your purposes on the scene of history through what happens in Acts and now particularly through the city of Antioch and how all things are indeed working according to your sovereign purpose to bring us to the right place at the right time with the right beliefs and in the right spiritual condition. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another and to help one another learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are ready for church. Acts 11, 27 through 28 now. At this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be would certainly be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the reign of Claudius. I should have probably highlighted in red took place because this text here when I was uh, originally working on the categories necessary to help us decide what to believe in regard to spiritual gifts and whether there are prophets and whether people predicting the future should be listened to. Uh, This was in the 80s. This was uh, one of the favorite proof texts of the people who wanted modern-day apostles and prophets. And this is not an insignificant movement. I've been hearing from people overseas who uh, I mentioned last week, Israel. Now I heard from somebody from Kenya. And that's a very hopeful uh, contact as well. They're starting to find the resources they need because this movement is 
invading the whole world. Let me make a statement and then we'll see if it will hold up under biblical scrutiny. There is a uniqueness to what was happening when there were the biblical apostles and prophets. But that is not as total and stark as some people say. In other words, there's continuity and discontinuity after the death of the apostles. So uh, to claim that there's no difference is clearly false. In my opinion, I think we can prove that and have done so with theological articles. But to say that the gifts of the Spirit ceased and we shouldn't uh, even be concerned whatsoever with anything supernatural is also false. So in order to uh, combat the uh, accusation that we're cessationists, I wrote an article about prophecy. In that article in CIC about prophecy, I cite both Luther and Calvin and then other notable people since the time of the Reformation who claim that there is valid prophecy in the church. And then we define it. And then I also cite John MacArthur, who is a famous cessationist, who say the gifts and wrote a book about the gifts of the Spirit having ceased. And what's interesting, and I love John MacArthur, don't get me wrong, I think you know that. I've been rebuked by people because they found me citing him favorably in an article or two. So he, the cessationist in one of his books, actually prophesies accurately himself. And that, I, I wrote an article about that. It was, I think his book is called Hard to Believe. His book, he, he says, the Lord says, now this is MacArthur, the Lord says, and then he accurately proclaims what the gospel is about and what we need to be doing. And I cite that, and I say, I say John MacArthur accurately prophesied, and we should listen to him. But he says prophecy ceased. Now, what I'm saying is, get the definition right, and you won't have to do that. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, where it says that you can prophesy one, two, or three at a time, and then the others judge, I would define prophecy as proclaiming valid implications and applications of Scripture. Forthtelling, not foretelling and if somebody claims that they are an agabus which I think they are foolish to do then they also have to put themselves under the requirement of Deuteronomy 13 does anybody know what that requirement is Dana does Levon does the require, what's the requirement in Deuteronomy 13 for prophets? Okay, you got the mic. You have a mic. You have to answer that way. 
Or he already has it. Look at that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was actually going to do the First Corinthians, but in Deuteronomy 13, they have to. Is that the doctrinal standard or the one that? No, they have that's to, about it. Has to come to pass. It has to come to pass. Yeah. There's two things they have to teach, not differently than Yahweh's doctrine. That's, that's first later Cor in Deuteronomy. Right. That's Deuteronomy 18. 18. And then Deuteronomy 13, it has to come to pass. So they right. can't say something that's going to happen, and if it doesn't come to pass, then they're not to be feared. They're not a prophet who right. spoke in the name of the Lord. So that's why took place is important here. It actually happened in real time and space under real people that really existed. This is not the Book of Mormon prophesying in fake places, in fake things that never happened. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, go ahead and talk yeah, about Yeah, I'm sorry. It. You know, just to prove, Bob, if everyone turns your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, Bob just mentioned that you may all prophesy one by one. And this is 1 Corinthians 14, 31. And what struck me in that passage when Bob had used it in his article is to prove, the, the debate is when he says you may all prophesy, is the all referring to all prophets? As if there's just a special lot of prophets and therefore it's limited to all prophets. So it's not all believers, it's just all prophets. That's the claim that secessionists will make. But to prove that Bob is correct in his article, that when it says you may all prophesy, all refers to every single Christian within the congregation. Notice in the context of verse 31, it says you can all prophesy one by one so that you all may learn and all be encouraged. Well, that term all, is it only all the prophets that can learn? and only all the prophets that can be encouraged? Well, obviously, it's all believers. And so it's highly unlikely that when Paul is penning this, remember the term all in Greek is pas, he's using that, he's not going to use all differently in the same sentence. He must be referring to all believers. So exegetically, Bob had a lot more going for him in his article than does John MacArthur in his book, because all certainly has to do with every believer, not just all of a specific class of prophets. I hope that makes sense. Yes, uh, bring the mic to Christy. Okay, so I just want to work through a little bit further the foretelling prophets from the Old Testament on the prophecies that have not come to pass yet. How then would you respond to a person that says, well, um, I, I'm not good with prophecy, sorry, <laughs> but one of these prophecies has not come to pass yet, so how do you know then this is a valid prophet? Okay. Well, for one thing, they're prophesying what's going to happen during the millennium. And we're not in the millennium. I don't believe there's a prophecy during the church age that we're waiting for anything to come to pass other than the rapture. Now, Eric, you've preached on that. Do you want to comment on on that as well. Yeah, amen. Yeah, you know, I would just say when it comes to Scripture and what's been revealed in Scripture is something that's going to come to pass. We can foretell that and, and preach that. But when Bob is distinguishing between foretelling and foretelling, what he's distinguishing is that you and I as believers, when we prophesy, we're not declaring of our own accord the future. Okay, that's something that God hasn't revealed to us because we're not apostles and prophets. But what we can do is foretell, meaning we can come up with implications, applications, and the meaning of Scripture. And, we and those can are give binding. Them. And exactly, and those are binding. So, for example, in Daniel 9, and we see this fulfilled in Revelation you know, chapter 13, on and on, we can say, yes, these things are going to happen, not because it was revealed to me personally by the Lord, but because I'm going by the prophets and apostles in the Scriptures. 
Okay, so I can foretell then what the scriptures are declaring, but I myself can't say, well, in the year 2022, the Lord is going to return, or, you know, whatever prophecy it is. I, know. I, I don't know that. But people yeah. keep doing these things. Right. There was a guy that wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Lord's Going to Return in 1988. And I rebuked that whole thing. That was for CIC. Well, then in, when it doesn't happen, he wrote another book because he sold enough of them. He must have made a lot of money. 89 Reasons Why That's Going to Happen in 1989. Is it on? Well, when that didn't happen, I think he ran out of readers. Okay, go ahead. In regards to what Christy was saying, there's some Old Testament prophecies that maybe don't take place for generations down the road. And that Deuteronomy 13 says the prerequisite to follow or listen to somebody is that that prophecy come true. So somebody could prophesy in the Old Testament and people could pass away and that prophecy never came to pass yet. But it didn't fail. But it either. didn't fail either. But then those people who were living around that person who made the prophecy, they would say, well, gee, look, it well, hasn't says, happened. Don't, don't fear them. What's there to fear about something that won't happen for 1,000 or 2,000 years? Okay, let, I, here's a, let me give you an example. There's a fellow, and I, boy, did I take some nasty response because I rebuked a guy who was claiming that America is under some old covenant law that we're supposed to not farm the fields every seven years and who predicted that in October of 2015, catastrophe was going to happen in including may, maybe probably a stock market and all those kind of things. So I made sure I wrote before October, I wrote in June, and rebuked him and declared him to be a false prophet before for claiming America was under Israel's old covenant law. And he's confusing providence with God's moral law, which we're going to get to one of these times. I promise we will, maybe not today. Now, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And people were telling me how evil I was for rebuking the guy. And what happens after he fails? They have him back to preach again. He writes another book. And when I used to rebuke these false prophets, they said, well, we're learning, we're trying, and we're not quite getting it all right. Here's another point. I see your hand. I want to finish this. Here's, I wrote this in the article about that guy. Let's say Agabus got two out of three right. Okay. Now what happens, let me go on here so we can cover this. So what did they do? They took up an offering amongst the churches in Asia Minor to send relief to Jerusalem for a famine that had not yet happened. Okay, if you, okay. <laughs> Boy, I've been trying since the 80s to get the church to understand this. If you don't know whether it's going to happen or not, it's the most worthless information you ever got. I can tell you right now, 
that in the next three years, the stock market will either go up or go down, or maybe it'll stay the same. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> it's worthless. You can't take action on worthless information. Now, there were living apostles and prophets on the scene of history when this was happening. And Paul was there. Peter was there. People who saw the resurrected Christ, who were valid apostles, were appointed by Christ, and were taught by Christ. There were still unique things happening in Acts. We can't destroy the uniqueness of Acts and say it's no different today because then we've just thrown sola scriptura out the window. And then we've thrown apostles that are appointed by Christ out the window and we've opened the door for the Pope and the College of Cardinals and the councils of the Catholic Church and the Vatican and everything else. And they're saying, well, we're, they didn't quite get it right. We're going to do a better job this time. No. Okay. If you fail one time about something that would be pertinent to the church taking action, okay, so if you say a thousand years from now, so-and-so is going to happen, I probably wouldn't listen to you, but it won't matter because I'm not going to be here anyhow. This happened right away. They already took an offering. So I asked these pastors, who some of whom were in this movement, what value is there on something that may or may not happen. We already know it may or may not happen. They can't answer that. Well, maybe we'll get it right next day. So they keep throwing the prophecies out there, predicting the future. And if they throw enough of them out, one time one of them happens, then they can put it on their uh, YouTube and their ads. And, oh, look at this, the great prophet of God, Todd Bentley. All right, go ahead. <clears throat> So I was um, thinking about the spiritual gifts, especially in 1 Corinthians, and one of them was, well, let's see, missions, I think. And um, to me, I, I never understood how God really gives understanding, and God, to me, and, and I've been learning about, like, like, even in my Sunday night when we gather, I was, sometimes I'll just have nothing to say, and, and then God will grant me, like, an understanding or, a, or, or something that's really on my heart to say. And so I'm learning, okay, that, that's a gift of God. And I don't know if that's revelation, but what I do see here in, in 1 Corinthians is that there's interpretation. Uh, it says, let each one, if there's a different interpretation, let him speak. There's revelation, and then there's prophecy. And so there are three different words, and I don't believe you can say that all three words are the same thing. And there's other descriptions like Agabus of prophecy, so whereas I don't entirely know what prophecy looks like, even though I, I think what Agabus did is prophecy, I, I just think it's too much to say that prophecy is never foretelling the future or... No, it's not too much. We can say that, and I am saying it. Uh, I All right, and I'm not going to back down from it because I've seen too many lives destroyed by false prophets, okay? And if somebody's going to claim that, Eric then they've got to go by the standards of it must come to pass. And, and until and unless the, the Todd Bentleys and the uh, Jonathan Cons of the world 
are driven out of the church and not allowed to speak again until they repent, then we're going to have none of it. You can't say to people, thus saith the Lord. Not only that, one more thing. I'm fired up because I've seen too many lives destroyed. Here's another thing. We end up being pagans looking for signs. By the way, the word revelation has a range of meaning, and I think I have that in my article. Revelation doesn't mean something that's just now known that never had been known before, because Paul uses it in Ephesians in the context of appreciating what's already revealed. So there's a range of meaning. Not every revelation is new spiritual information never before given to the apostles and prophets of God. Yes. Well, I was just thinking of Joseph, who um, told stories. You know, he had dreams, and his whole family laughed at him and ridiculed him because they, it's all to them, that's all it was, was a dream. But then he gets to a pagan nation, and Pharaoh has a dream, and Joseph is able to interpret that dream. So that did two things. One, it validated that Joseph had something special because he could tell what he could tell Pharaoh what his dream actually was, and then he could tell what it meant. And so, and then it actually did come to pass. So it validated when he said, this was your dream to Pharaoh, because none of the other ones could. Daniel did that in Daniel too, yes. And none of the other ones could do that. They knew that was something special. He's getting information from somewhere. Yeah, actually it says in the, I, I was looking it up when I preached on Daniel 2 as an application. It said he saw it in a night vision. Now, remember, Nebuchadnezzar was demanding that you knew what his dream was and you knew what the interpretation was, okay? Otherwise, he was going to kill them. Well, the magicians of Babylon knew they were dead. And the magicians of Babylon said to Nebuchadnezzar, Only the gods know this kind of thing, and their dwelling is not with mortal men. You're requiring too much. And what did Daniel say? Yahweh, God, is the one who can do this. And so whatever happened with Daniel, and I think it was unique, if you go back and look up that word night vision, go back into, I think, Deuteronomy, Moses spoke to God face to face. As a man speaks to Yahweh face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. The tablets of the law, the ten words, were written by the finger of Yahweh on stone. The law was given to Moses at the tent of meeting in on Sinai, and it was objective. The apostles spoke to Jesus face to face. It was objective. What was this night vision that was so unique? Because even Moses said God may speak to a prophet in one of these night visions. It had to be objective enough that Daniel knew very specific content that was unknowable by any ordinary means. And his life was unknowable. Daniel came and said, well, I got an impression that maybe you dreamed about chickens. <laughs> Cut his head off. Okay. He knew exactly what it was. And so God showed that Daniel is the true prophet of God. And he's prophesied things that yet has. So we can believe what Daniel said. Yes, Aaron. 
Uh, so for me, I, I was actually led astray by a false prophet, that Doug Stanton guy that you talked about. So I just wanted to mention a couple subtleties about false teaching, which I, I didn't understand until I went to one. One of them is you can pray over someone, you know, confess that Jesus is your Lord and all this. And, and I really saw a demon, I mean, what the manifestations of a demon when this lady was, was saying all this. And to be honest, she was tearfully thankful because she, she thought the demon left her. I don't know if, she, if it did or didn't, but I know she had a demon just because of all, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. And anyways, but I was thinking, so he, he's saying the truth, but he's also, it says to test the spirits. There, yeah, there's two tests. That's, that's a good point, Eric. There's two tests. Right, and, and so there's, there's his actions. Um, there's also the doctrine, fruit, the fruit. Deuteronomy 18. Right. So you got to have doctrine. Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 13. Right, so... It's got to be good doctrine, and it's got to come to pass. Right, yeah. So and so you can't fail either one of them. Ryan over here. I love Sunday school. You know, I get up and it's Sunday and go, oh, it's Sunday. I'm like, this is so great. Yes, Ryan. So I was looking up a passage that I think applies to this. Maybe you can give the context. In Ezekiel 13, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, which I think is interesting, like you're talking about a definitive word of the Lord. But it says, son of man, prophesy against the prophet of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who prophesy from their own spirit and have seen nothing. And it goes on to say, they have seen false visions and lying divinations, saying, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and utter lying divination? Whoever yeah. you said declares the Lord although I have not spoken. So it seems like there's something very definitive that the word of the Lord came, and yet these other people think, well, I think this is what the word of the Lord is saying, but it's from their own spirit and their own mind and how we have to have discernment in that area. And when we say, thus says the Lord or declares the Lord, we need to be sure because we're speaking about the Holy One, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And we need to be sure what we're saying is true. Well, that's, yeah, there's an objectivity, right. There's got to be an objectivity. Good point, Ryan. We're going to get into this providence right now because it's coming up. We can't avoid it. Let me give you some categories to help you, okay? They have to do with providence. I don't believe we have an agabus in the church today. It doesn't mean we're lacking. Here's what you need to know. God is going to get you to the right place at the right time because of his providence. You're not going to goof up because you didn't get some new revelation. All right? And providence contains good and evil. And so when uh, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, there's your doctrine of providence. All things work out for the for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things is literal. That's in this article, issue 113. Let me give you an example that would have been, that's really kind of goofy if you want to talk about goofy, but when I was a Pentecostal, uh, as a new Christian, we had a tent meeting in Sheldon, Iowa. I showed you the coffee house we had. Well, one of those years, we had a tent meeting, and we brought in an evangelist, and we invited everybody in town to come 
to hear the gospel. And I was in a meeting. And I was sitting there with my Bible. And I'm, making, well, I'm just going to put this out there because I'm just sitting there reading my Bible. And I'm reading Ezekiel, I think, 43. And it says, Son of Man, show them the pattern so they won't defile my house anymore. It was something like that. So I thought, well, okay. So I'm reading that. And the pastor came over and said, I think, Bob, Bob, I think God's telling you what he's going to do with you for your life. Okay. I don't know what that means. So I'm sitting there, and here comes a lady who had been one of my teachers that I didn't know was a Christian. And I I was nasty because I hated English anyhow. If I was her, I would have kicked me out of the class. And so I was embarrassed that she was there remembering what a wicked student I'd been when I was a teenager. And she came up, obviously holding no grudges, when she saw I was a Christian. And she said, I think God's telling you what you're going to do with yourself or what he's going to do with you in your life. So that was 1971 or 72 thereabouts. There's nothing about Ezekiel that directly applies to me. Providence includes all things. Providence includes good and evil. We need the moral law of God to judge what is good or evil and not just say, well, it'll all work out. It's not fatalism. It's personal in that God in his beneficence cares about us and takes care of us. And even if we fail, God forbid, God still causes all things to work out for the good, but woe to the one who brings the offense. I don't want to bring offense. I don't believe any of us as Christians want to fail, but we probably will because we're not perfected. But in God's moral will, we still learn. Well, a later point in my life, not very much later, I was a chemical engineering student. And I was, again, in a Pentecostal church on Sunday nights. We had these meetings where people come up and pray and cry and repent. And some of it was good, some of it wasn't. And so there was one lady who got saved every Sunday night for a whole year. They weren't really good on the assurance of salvation in that church. They had backsliding and I don't know, they they didn't have a good enough doctrine where anybody had assurance. But I was thinking about that, what happened at a tent meeting. I thought, I wonder if God wants me to be a preacher instead of a chemical engineer. Thinking about that, he thing that had happened. So I went and thought, I was so wanting... Right that same time in his providence, I was in a class called the philosophy of science. And I heard as a Christian for only so like three or four months, I heard what ended up being emergent church idea I wrote about later. This guy was claiming he was teaching coherentism. As long as you have a cogent system then whatever you believe in that system is true if it fits in that system. But nobody can know which one is right. It was basically Thomas Kuhn's paradigm idea. So he's teaching this. I'm a new Christian. 
I'm studying science. I'm a junior. And I raised my hand because the students were saying, uh, required class, this is boring. And I was very interested because I had just come to know the truth. So I'm sitting there. Interesting. So I put my hand up. Professor, am I right to say that you're telling us that nobody can know what the truth is? He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. I don't think anybody else had seen that implication. And there was this collective gasp. Oh, here's all these science students are being told they can't know the truth. That influenced partly my decision. Well, I know the Bible's true. Maybe I should study that instead of chemical engineering. Then I'd had this thing happen where I'm meeting Ezekiel. I'm not Ezekiel. But these, why did these people come and tell me what they did? They didn't know what I was doing. That's just part of providence. Could have been good, could have been evil. And so in all of these things, I was at this Sunday night meeting. And I thought, I think God wants me to preach. So I went home. I didn't know how to tell my dad because he'd been paying for me to go to school of the chemical engineer, although I was mostly paying it myself with a summer job, but he was proud of me that I was doing well in science. I call home and I get my brother David. It wasn't easy to call in 1971. Nobody could afford to call long distance. He didn't have any money. But I did it anyhow. And I got my brother David and he was because he said, well, Dad's not, I need to talk to Dad. Dad's not here. He's in Des Moines, Iowa. Ames is about 30 minutes from Des Moines. So here sits this morning paper, and I look at it. It says, Soil Conservation Commission meeting. This is before cell phones, 1972. Okay. So I'm reading, or 71. I'm reading that, and it says, Soil Conservation Commission meeting in Des Moines, Iowa. I knew my dad was a soil conservation commissioner. And it told what hotel he was in. Or it was in. So I got in my car, took a big risk to miss class for one day, drove to Des Moines, and here comes my dad walking down the stairs when I got in this atrium of this huge hotel. And I said, uh, Dad, I, I need to talk to you about what I'm going to do with my life. And he says, Is it about religion? I hadn't even told him I'd become a Christian. Because we went to a liberal Methodist church back then, and I told the pastor, and he told me I was getting off on the wrong track, that there, there are no miracles, that everybody goes to heaven. And so I said, well, how'd you know? He says, well, the pastor came out and told us about your conversation with him. And so then I just talked with my dad, because I needed his blessing, because there's nobody to this day, he's been gone since 2001, but he was the most important person in my life. I said, Dad, I want to go to Bible college and see about going into the ministry. And he gave me his blessing. He said, if it fails, you can come back and still get your degree in chemical engineering. You're smart enough. He wanted to take me to see the Methodist bishop. I said, no. I didn't want to shame him, but I don't, I've heard enough from the Methodists. I wanted to go where they believe the Bible. Well, over the last 35 years, it's been my, especially through CIC, it says 92, is to show the church the pattern 
about the church, the truth, the gospel, truth in the air, what the Bible says, what it doesn't say, what we need to do, what we don't need to do. So it ended up being what happened. I'm not endorsing flipping through Ezekiel to find a ministry because that's divination. That's part of providence, okay? All of that happened. My dad happened to be in Des Moines. I happened to be reading that passage. Those people, I don't know why they told me what they told me. All of that is providence. In all of the providence, we still got to decide what's good and evil. Now, early on, I decided what's good is to go into the Bible and try to find loose associations to gain guidance. But that was wrong. And I did that for so many years and repented of it. But God used that, despite me, to get me to do what I'm doing now. Does that make sense? So what the gospel is, what the Bible says, what we can know, what God's moral law is, what we should be doing is God's moral law and its binding. Providence includes everything. I, uh, just to tie in the providence with what we're talking about, okay, I'm going to speak for myself, but I think this would apply to all Christians. In other words, I am redeemed through Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in righteousness, so I, I have right standing before God. And, and as I dwell with God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to work with God's Word in me, I have, my mind is being renewed day by day. But I'm still a sinner, I'm still a sinner. Yes. And so insight that I may have uh, or, or things that I think maybe I should do, I have to really, I can't claim that that's from God. I can't reliably claim that. I can say that the, these are on the non-moral things. In other words, on the moral things, we have the Bible. And so it's very clear. And so uh, I can go up to a church that's presenting uh, an interfaith dialogue with a Muslim, and I can tell forth and say, here's what the Bible teaches. I can yeah. do that. When we preach the gospel, we prophesy. Yeah, exactly. So there's this, this interplay between providence. I might make a decision that I think God would want me yeah, to do. Yeah, why did you end up there doing that? Yeah, exactly. And in other words, I felt that that's what God wanted me to do, but I would not put that into the category of prophecy. You know, in other words, I made a decision, and providentially, yeah. someone asked me to go up okay. there. So. so here's the liberating thing, and we will get to a more focused discussion of this doctrine. Here's the liberating thing. If the church teaches the people of God the moral law of God, including what the gospel's about, what's true, what's false, what the Bible really tell, tells us, what's binding and what's not. If we become proficient in that, then we're able to judge prophecy. First Corinthians 14. You all may speak, let the others judge. Now, the providential will of God includes good and evil. If we can't tell the difference between good and evil, then we become like pagans looking for signs. You know, the old guidance of close your eyes. You know, the, they had a story in Bible college. A guy did that, and it says jo, Joseph, or Judas went and hung himself, and then they opened it again, go and do likewise. 
You know, they, I remember a teacher telling me that. Hold on a second. You've had several op- options, Eric. I want to make sure everybody gets a chance. You can't just be pagan. We're going to see this as we go through Ephesians. I'm coming up on the, not the 15th, but the 22nd is the most difficult material I've ever had to preach in my entire life. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. It's very, very difficult. But here's the deal. We can know what God said. And we can judge prophecy. But we don't have to fear that we're going to get something wrong because we didn't, fate kind of got us. God was trying to tell me to do this or do that. How about deciding who to marry? Should we talk about that? All the old people said, oh, it's too late. (laughs) No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Let's talk about that. What we need to know is what is a valid decision within our Christian liberty. Right? What's a valid decision that's within a Christian liberty? We don't need to do soothsaying to figure out who's the right person. Nor do we find that out if we do get married and and two months later the person we married has a very bad disease. And then we start thinking like pagans, well, I guess I married the wrong person. Providence doesn't mean everything goes the way we want it to. It doesn't mean our car never breaks down. It doesn't mean our stocks always go up. It doesn't mean our roof never leaks. It doesn't mean every time we make a decision, it turns to gold. It doesn't mean every time we throw a line in the water, the fish bites it no matter what. If you think about it very seriously, you'll realize that that would be a really goofy life, having the magic touch. Half of the Excitement of life is the possibility you might fail. Well, that's just not the way it is right now. And we'll, we'll, I want to talk about it. But it used to be so difficult because we were trying to get revelations. Now somebody would say, well, I want to get married, but I'm not sure if it's, this is right or wrong. I just look, is this within or not within Christian liberty? It's the only decision. Everything else... Our uh, our nephew, my wife's nephew, went to school, wonderful young man, met a gal, they fell in love, they got engaged, and I, th- I think, the, I don't know if the wedding's happened yet, but not too long after that, it turns out she has Crohn's disease, and it's a horrible disease, and she's never going to really be normal, barring a miracle, and he says... I know that this is the one for me, and that's not going to change anything. I'm still looking forward to the wedding. He didn't bail out when he found out that she had Crohn's disease. Let me point something out. One of the things I'm teaching now very strongly, and and I have an article that I need to write about this. I was prepared to do it in January, but I landed in the hospital I'm praying that I can make it through one winter without going to the hospital. That would be a great. But here's the deal. If we can't identify what the promises of God are, 
to us as Christians, we don't know what to believe. Now, the faith healers are saying you should be in perfect health. And then when you point out to them, well, everybody dies. These aren't our glorified bodies. Well, then they switch it to, well, the great guys that we know, like Kenneth Hagin, he didn't die. He just decided to go to heaven. All right. And then that wealth doctrine. They get wealthy robbing poor widows, promising them they'll get wealthy if they give their money to these false teachers. So I've written about this. And, but here, do you, I want you to get the categories. And if you haven't read it, read CIC issue 113, which, by the way, is prophecy, if you want to call it that, certainly teaching. You can judge whether it's biblical or not. I'm not putting anything out there saying you've got to believe it because I wrote it. That would be abusive. Do you see what I mean? All believers have the right and authority in Christ to judge prophecy. You may all judge. So if you see a weakness in my arguments, let me give you an example. I was rereading this yesterday. Reread the article from about 10 years ago. I remember a guy, I think I've mentioned it, he was going to write a book, and he was so angry. And so He was an old friend that we'd had preaching. He was so angry against the doctrines of grace, he was just outraged, just all emotion. And he was saying, so-and-so, I don't know if it was R.C. Sproul or somebody, so, so-and-so is so desperate, they even go to saying there's two wills in God. How desperate they are. Well, see, that's an informal logical fallacy. Do you know how? It's assuming that you're God Almighty and you know the heart. That's not a valid argument. We've got to know that. God knows the heart. We don't. So I don't win an argument by saying, uh, so-and-so is so desperate they root for the twins. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, no. no. That's within our liberty, right? Uh, This was something serious, like we can know this from the Bible. For one thing, you don't know that whoever it was, R.C. Sproul may have been, he wrote about this and said there's two wills and God has a providential will and a moral will. And providence concerns good and evil. And it's based on Genesis, which one is it? Genesis 50, 20. What's, somebody want to find it? Look for the one in where he said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It's Joseph. See if somebody can find that. But it's right there in the Bible. You have to account for the scripture. You can't win an argument by saying my opponent's wrong because he's desperate. Do you see people do that? The liberals do it constantly. They know everybody's motive. I had somebody tell me that I was full of fear because I didn't believe in socialism. I'm full of fear. I said, no, I really, I'm not afraid. I just don't like things that are false and don't work. (laughs) My problem in life has been I had too little fear. I'm lucky to be alive. I shouldn't say lucky. By God's providence, I'm alive. But, uh, Yes, here, somebody have the verse. 
Okay. Uh, Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Okay. Here's what we're going to learn. This will help you as you study the topic for our discussion. What did the brothers have in mind? Evil. Is it evil to throw your brother in a ditch and bring his clothing to the dad and say, well, he's dead? Is that what they did? Isn't that evil? Who else did evil to him? Potiphar's wife? He ran. Okay, that's moral evil. But the process, and this is in the article, was to get God's promise to Abraham to all the way to Moses eventually, 400 years later. And so God's providence intended good, but in the intention, Potiphar's wife did evil, Joseph's brother did evil, Pharaoh did evil, and then it ends up with Moses in the Ark of the Bulrushes. It's just a beautiful story. God will get us to the right place at the right time. But we need to know the difference. I don't want to be Joseph's brother selling him into slavery out of jealousy. Because that's a sin. Does that make sense? And I can't say, well, well Eric has been preaching to Romans. Doesn't, doesn't Paul anticipate that argument in Romans where the, somebody else, well, you will say then. Romans 9. Yeah, in Romans 9, well, how can he judge me? Because who can resist his will? It's like if Joseph's brother said, well, see, God used it, so I'm glad we sold you into slavery. (laughs) That's bad. God's got me to the right place in the right time, and I failed many different ways. I've been in false teaching. I joined a group that I shouldn't have joined because it was wrong. I was warned by teachers that knew better. I was told to stay in the Bible and learn the Greek. I wanted to instead go for pietism and new revelations. Five years casting out demons, doing inner healing. It was bad. It it was wrong. It harmed people. When I got out and I realized it was wrong, I started preaching and writing, hoping that God would use my newfound understanding of the truth to help people who were harmed by the kind of things I did when I didn't listen to the teachers I should have listened to. If we can't get the categories right, we can't learn. If we can't understand God's providential will, which includes good and evil, all things, and God's moral will, which is revealed in the Bible, then we can't learn. He can't just say, R.C. Sproul is so desperate, he says there's two wills in God. That's not an argument. You know, when I hear that, then I go, in fact, I tried to tell the fellow, I don't think you should write on this. I don't think you understand it. So he wrote 500 pages and made a fool out of himself. God is in charge of his own universe. Want to say something? Levant, go ahead. I think the best example of God's providential will is in Acts 2, 22. It is. 23, when he says... Um, Astute how Israel, reading. How Go ahead. Israel um, 
delivered by the, that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Exactly right, LaVon. And that's, that's the proof. And you cannot say God can't use evil. It was God's purpose from eternity the Messiah would be crucified. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This was God's eternal purpose. But the ones that did it, it needs be that offense come, but woe to him by whom it comes. We're never off the hook for doing evil because we find out that God used it. Does that make sense? All right. Yes, Scott. Well, I just wanted to fill in a little detail that many know, but some may not, and that about uh, your uh, being involved with that group you say you shouldn't have been in, that's where TCF came out of. Yes. And and the reason it happened, and the reason we ended up finally with scripture alone because we had to help the people who had been hurt by the group. People had sold their houses. They sold houses for 30000 Five, six years later when they left the group, the same house was 70000 and they had gotten no in- income during those five or six years. There were elderly people there that thought that the group was going to take care of them. And when we left, and they, plus we had these false healing teachings, and the, uh, the senior pastor, and I was the associate pastor, we spent a lot of time comforting seniors who were on their deathbed, feeling like they failed God or they wouldn't be dying. And they were tormented. And these, some of these were the, some of the finest saints I've ever met. And the pastor and I went to their bedside to pray for them. And said, why, they said, why did this happen? What did I do? What did I do wrong? Grandma, we said, you didn't do anything wrong. You're going to go be with Jesus. You love Jesus. But I thought God was going to heal people. There's a time disappointed that wants to die. And after that, we go either to judgment to condemnation or to reward by Christ uh, over in the long run, and then another one, and another one. And that helped bring us together, by the way, as, as a church back then, because we thought we've got to help these hurting people because they don't have anything else left. If we don't help them, then we really fail God. We did the funerals, we took care of them, we visited them, we helped them teach their kids. And then after all of these new prophet, uh, bring, uh, I think Judy wants the mic over here. Then bring, so what, here, here's what was going on. One great man of God after another came through town. Yay, the great man of faith and power. And then we'd have a new movement. It failed one year later. Another great man of faith and power. It would fail. Another great man of faith and power. It would fail. Then another new Revelation about how God's going to heal people, it would fail. And probably the most providential and profound, and really, according to moral law of God, thing, I remember it so well. It happened in 1983. I was the assistant pastor. I was 32 years old then. 
I said to the senior pastor, these people have been let down and hurt, and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to believe. We can't allow this to happen anymore. We've got to give them something that 10 years from now we're not going to apologize for. And I said, the only thing I can think of is teaching the Bible. Because it's going to be the same 10 years from now. And he said, great, let's just teach the Bible. So we started that in 1983, Twin City Fellowship. Yes, Judy. I just have one question. Theophostic prayer, I understand, is wrong. Yes. What category is that? Is that adding something to God's word? How would you say that to somebody? It's, it's an attack against the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel. What's that? Divination. It's divination. It's requiring that you have to get secret information from the world of the spirits in order to process your own memories and your own past. And if you want a simple version of why it's wrong, go to Jeremiah 17. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, know the heart. And when God washes us and cleanses our conscience, he doesn't tell us to go back and process the past. Eric, could you finish up and then pray when you're I will. I thought Brian raised an interesting question. What about Isaiah 2, for example, when the prophet prophesies about something that has not yet occurred, it's going to occur in the millennial kingdom, the swords being beaten into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. That never happened in Isaiah's day. Couldn't they say, hey, you're a false prophet? But what Isaiah did is he used near-term predictions to show that God was good for the far term. Take Isaiah 13. God said, yes, he's going to judge one day the whole world in the day of the Lord. But a down payment's going to be given temporarily or in the short term, which is the Babylonians are coming. Joel does the same thing. How do you know one day there's going to be this tremendous day of the Lord? Well, there's a locust judgment in the short term. So the prophets of God would always prophesy a near-term judgment to prove what would happen one day in the future day of the Lord, which is still in our future. So that's how the prophets validated that they indeed spoke for God. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But I'm sorry, I'll, I'll pray. No, that's fantastic. Oh, okay. yep. Now, by the way... And Dana has been giving us some great teaching. We are not having to worry that something is going to get goofed up in the millennial kingdom because Jesus will be here. And when he's here, he can do anything he wants. And nobody will question him. Sola Scriptura lasts right up till then. Why? Because once Jesus is here... He can tell us anything he wants to tell us. So I spend my time trying to figure out what we're supposed to do during a church age when Jesus isn't here. Not that we can't study. I think Dana for his teaching. Any, everything in the Bible is to be taught and understood. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I'm so motivated. I don't want other people to be as dumb as I was. You don't have to go through all this. You can know what God said in scripture. You don't need to have to join a group like I did. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for taking care of us and helping us and guarding us and especially taking care of the elderly. Thank you for helping my mom and others. Life is difficult and tough, even young people. Uh, Thank you for the man who's a new father who turns out his disease is treatable. 
Thank you for the prayers of the saints. And we ask you to help us learn what you're saying so that we may honor you in all we do by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I love when people want to learn.